Are you interested in questions? Are you interested in questions? Not only questions, but how questions are asked. Because you can ask the same question in a variety of different ways, can't you? And there's the same question that's asked in the scriptures, but from two very different viewpoints and two different ways. One of them was asked, it's of our saviour, by the scribes and the Pharisees. Our Lord Jesus was teaching in a house. There was no social distancing in this house. It was packed. And when our Lord was teaching, he was conscious that there was some dismantlement in the roof. And a man came down and was lowered, and he was a paralytic. And what did our Lord Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven you. And what did the religious leaders that were there, no doubt being a somewhat of a connoisseur to our Lord's ministry, they said, who is this? But they were saying it in a critical way. Who is this? It's the same Greek words that are used in the end of our passage in Mark chapter 4 when the disciples are asking of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is this, literally? Who can this be? The same question, but asked in a different way. Who is this? Who can this be? It is vital that we ask that question. Who is Jesus? But it's vital that we ask it in the right way and in the right attitude and with a teachable, not a critical spirit. Who is this? Have you ever asked that question? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was that man that was in Nazareth all those years ago? Who is he? We're going to look at this particular incident that we read. We're going to look at it from Mark's viewpoint in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to, to 41. And we're going to notice three things. First of all, look at the situation. Secondly, look at the saviour. Thirdly, look at the sequel. Look at what happens next. So first of all, notice, look at the situation. What's happening? What has our Lord been doing? Our Lord's been teaching He's been teaching all day. How has he been teaching? He's been teaching through parables, through similitudes, through illustrations, through its parallels. You ever seen a train track? And there's two, two lines going down. Well, they're earthly illustrations with heavenly applications. And we get a synopsis of them, not all of them, in Mark chapter 4. And now it's in the evening. And our Lord wants to move on. And he wants to cross over on the other side. Because where is Christ? Christ is at Lake Galilee, one of his favourite places that he liked to frequent. And he said to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. They were going with ways. We know that because of chapter 5, verse 1. They're in the country of the Gennadarenes, which is east of Lake Galilee. He's already in a boat. So the disciples just gather into that boat and they cross over their little fishing boat. Now our Lord Jesus Christ knows what he's doing. The crowds have been sent away or left there. Some ambiguity in the original about that word. It could mean that the crowds were left there. It could mean that they were sent away. In any event, the Lord wants to move away from that place where he was. And he gets into, he's in the boat already and they cross over. Now you say, well, why does our Lord want to cross over on the other side? After all, he's speaking to the crowds. He's making impact. He's making an impression. Why does he want to cross over? Because our Lord's not like the celebrities of our day. 
The Lord doesn't just perform to crowds. He's interested in individuals. And the reason why he wants to cross over onto the other side is because he wants to be a blessing to an outcast in society, to a demon-possessed man. See, our Lord is interested in individuals as well as in crowds, as well as in numbers. He's going to leave the crowds and he's going to cross over to be a blessing to a demoniac man. Probably two if we look at Matthew's account. Mark only mentions one and so does Luke. But nonetheless, he wants to be a blessing to individuals as well as to crowds. He has a purpose for everything that he does. He's got a reason. He knows what he's doing. It's like a person who's been working at their trade for many years. And they know what they're doing. They can do it almost in their sleep, we say. They know, they know what they're doing. And our Lord knows what he's doing. And there's a reason for everything that Christ does. There is a purpose for what he does. And we can trust him and must trust him and must follow him. Even though we don't understand him. It's been said this. We trust him even though we can't trace him. His ways are past finding out. We don't know why the Lord does certain things. But we know this, that Christ is in control. And it's good, isn't it? That he is. And so they cross over to the other side. Now don't forget that at least four of the disciples are fishermen. They've been, you remember in chapter 1 of Mark when they were called, two sets of brothers, Peter and his brother Andrew, and James and his brother John, and they've been called by Lake Galilee. Lake Galilee was their place of employment. They knew it well. They knew it like the back of their hand. Just like you would know your place of employment well. You spend so many hours there, don't you? Whether it's an office or a factory or a farm or whatever it is, you know it well, don't you? And they knew Lake Galilee well. Was it business as normal, just crossing over to the other side? It was only a short 10-mile trip. We don't think much, do we, of, of travelling 10 miles? just to cross over to the other side. They knew that storms would have happened often in Lake Galilee because the sea would come up just where the River Jordan ends and it was a very mountainous area around Lake Galilee and it funnels right round the, the mountains and so the wind whips up over Lake Galilee. Very often there were storms, but nothing like this. This was a great wind of storm. Great storm. Great wind storm. And so you can imagine Peter speaking to one of the disciples and, and saying, we're in for a big one here. As he looks at the menacing crowds that are, that are encompassing them. And there's a big storm. Water is filling into the boat. And we don't need to be an expert to know that when water is filling into a boat, it's bad news, isn't it? It could capsize at any moment because of the wind. They're in a dire situation. They could easily perish. They could easily die. They're bailing out water. The scene is frenetic. What are they going to do? That's the situation. Have you ever felt like that before in life? Have you ever felt like life's a storm at times? Have you ever felt as if water is coming into the vessel of your soul and it's putting pressure on you? And it seems as if trials are like buses, aren't they? You wait for ages and four come at once. It's true, isn't it? It feels as if the storms are encompassing our lives and the pressures of life. We will have trials. And Christians are not immune. 
It is awful to say that as soon as someone becomes a Christian, there's health and there's wealth and there's prosperity, humanly, and that there's nothing that's going to go wrong in our lives. It's cruel and it's handling the word of God deceitfully because we're never promised an easy life here on earth. We'll have problems. Christians have losses. Christians have griefs. Christians have disappointments. Christians have trials. Christians stay awake at night worrying. Christians have depression. Christians have many, many trials, don't we? We're not immune from them. We will have problems. And notice that the problems were not because of the disciples' disobedience. Who was it that said, let us cross over to the other side? It was our Lord. And there's a storm. And it is not the case that when we have problems in life, it's necessary that there's a particular sin in our lives. It may be the case, and the Lord may use trials in order to bring us back. He may do, but not usually. And we shouldn't necessarily be beating ourselves up, wondering if there's something wrong with us, because we're going through this problem, just like Job, isn't it? Here he was, being godly. He was in the way of duty. He was praying for his family. He was being a godly man. He was eschewing evil. And what happened? He had all these terrible trials that came upon him. He was in the line of duty. It's just like when the disciples walked past a man who was born blind and they said to our Saviour, they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, neither. And so we need to take heart. It can be cruel to be always thinking that there's something wrong with us because of the problems in our lives. The Lord had no sin in his life and he's called a man of sorrows. It's just a reality of our lives, isn't it? It's a reality of of the fallen world we live in, that there will be problems and there will be distresses and disappointments and setbacks. There'll be the storms. So they look at the situation. Secondly, look at the Savior. Now, what's Jesus doing as this event is unfolding? Is he with his disciples, bailing out the water? He's asleep. On a pillow. That tells us many things, just that little phrase. What does it tell us? It tells us that sleep is good. Sleep is not evil, is it? In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 12 says this The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. It's not evil to, to sleep. Our Lord is sinless, sleeps. And we need sleep. It's not an evil thing. God caused Adam in Genesis 2 verse 21 into a deep sleep when he took out a rib to create Eve. It's not wrong, is it? How would the Lord cause Adam to to be in a deep sleep if sleep in itself was evil? It's not inherently wrong to sleep and we need it. And we make make a good assessment before the Lord as to how many hours sleep we need based on our age and our pressures in our day. And we stick to it and we don't feel guilty. Because we need sleep. And I know that my family need extra grace the next day if I haven't slept well. We need it, don't we? And we shouldn't feel guilty about it. Our Lord's asleep. What else does it tell us? It tells us this. Although Jesus Christ is fully God, and we're going to see that in a moment, he's also fully man in a way I don't understand. He has two distinct natures. When he became a man, he took upon himself something that he was not before while retaining what he was. There was an addition, not a subtraction. He became a man, and he's fully man. And he's asleep, he's tired, he's worn out. He's been preaching all day long. 
He's been thinking about illustrations and the best way of presenting them. He's been thinking about how he can speak to this crowd effectively in parables. It's emotionally, physically, spiritually draining. And he's asleep. He must have been quite tired to sleep through a great windstorm. He's a human being. Fully man. He slept. Had other things as well. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He would have had a body weight. He rejoiced in his spirit. He wept. He did things that are human. And therefore, stoicism is not biblical. We're human. We should never be stiff upper lip. And we should always remember our humanity. We should be ashamed of our sin because our Lord was without sin. He was tempted in all points just as well. Yet without sin, he never had sinful human emotions, but he had every sinless human emotion. And we should. It's a good thing for us to remember our humanity. The Lord remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And it's been said we often forget it. We're human beings. And our Lord's human. And he, he sleeps. Which is one of the great things about Christianity, isn't it? That our Lord, that we worship, is human. And he can sympathize with us. And empathize with us. And when we're tempted, he's been tempted with the same temptation. Have such a great saviour. He's fully human. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Isn't that encouraging? Do you ever feel as if you're struggling? Do you ever feel as if you're tempted? Our Lord knew what it was to be tempted. He's human, fully human. Such an important teaching in our Christian creed. He took upon himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He had a human body and had a human soul. There's been some that have taught down through the years that our Lord had a human body and placed within his human body as a carrier for his divinity. It's false. He had a human soul as well as a human body. As well as being fully God. I don't understand it. Two distinct natures in the unity of the one person. But he's fully man. What encouraging teaching that is for us, isn't it? Fully man, not half man, fully man. And he takes upon himself humanity, the ideal man, as he suffers upon the cross. He felt it. He felt every blow as a man. The pain as a man for us. It also tells us something else which is more important in the context of the passage. What does it tell us? It tells us that Christ is in control. He's not there with his disciples bailing out water. He's not wringing his hands, not knowing what to do. He's not pacing up and down the the deck like a headless chicken running around at the end of himself. What's he doing? He's sleeping. He knows there's going to be a storm when he says, let us cross over to the other side. But he's asleep. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. And he's in control even when the disciples didn't think he was in control. And the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think he's in control today? Do you think he's in control in the middle of coronavirus? Do you think that he's been toppled, detoppled off his throne? Do you think he's been dethroned? He's still on the throne today. 
He's still ruling today. He's not taken by surprise. And even when he doesn't realize it, even though we might be tempted at times to say, like the disciples, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? Are you not concerned? He is concerned. It's not that he doesn't care. He's going to get up and do something about it, isn't he? He's going to, he's going to steal the waves. But our Lord's in control. And the Lord doesn't often do everything we want him to do when we want him to do it, does he? He's in control. He's in control of this storm and he's in control today. He's in control of every situation. He's in control of all of our trials. We're going we're gonna to hear a hymn or read it on the sheet and it says this, Be still, my soul. The winds and waves still know the voice which ruled him while, they hid, while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul. The wind and waves still know the voice which ruled them while he dwelt below. He's in control still. He's still in control. Don't lose heart, believer. Christ is still on the throne. Christ understands. Christ knows our weaknesses. Christ understands all the situations. And he's deeply concerned. And he hasn't lost control. He's still at the proverbial well. And that's encouraging, isn't it? So the disciples, they wake him up in a flap. Do you not care that we're perishing? And what does our Lord do? You get the impression that he walks up and he's very nonchalant, isn't he? And he gets up and he, he, he talks to the wind and the waves. He does something which nobody else can really do. You imagine going over to Whitby or to Scarborough and start talking to the wind and the waves. You may get a few funny looks from the residents, mind you. You start talking to them. Or if you're on a ferry, maybe you're, you're crossing the English Channel and it's a bit choppy, and so, so you decide to, get, to, to, to talk over the, over the side and say, peace be still. Do you think they're going to listen to you? You can say it however long you want. You can say it however loudly you want. You can say it however nicely you want. But I'll tell you something, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference, is it? But this man speaks to the wind and the waves. And he's not out of his senses because they obey him. They obey him. What does that tell you? It speaks in unmistakable terms of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It shows us in unmistakable picture who Christ is, doesn't it? Who other than God can speak to the wind and the waves and they obey? And there's a calm as he says, peace be still. It tells us unmistakably of the identity of Christ. And no wonder why the disciples, they were amazed... Because surely they would have had read out of the synagogue passages in the Old Testament in the Psalms that spoke of Yahweh as the one healing the storms. And surely they would have heard passages read out like this in Psalm 89 verses 8 and 9. O Lord of God of hosts, who is a strong God like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea, when the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Talking of the Lord. And here is Jesus, their master, stilling the waves. And no wonder why they say at the end, who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Or they would have surely known passages like in Psalm 107, which has been called the seafaring psalm, hasn't it? And when people are in distress and they cry out to the Lord, and Psalm 107 verse 28, then they cried out unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. And this is the man who's still in the waves, who's doing something that Yahweh does. What an impact that must have made. No wonder why they're exceedingly afraid and say, what manner of man is this? Who can this be? Who is this man? They're bowled over. How are you bowled over by Christ? Do we read the Gospels and and are confronted with the mighty acts of Christ and say, who can this man be? He's not a Winston Churchill. He's not a Mother Teresa, just a good person that did good things. He's so much more. He's none other than God incarnate. And this demands a response, doesn't it? It demands that we sit up and take notice. It's a person who actually stills the sea and the raging waves. It demands our response. It demands our allegiance. It demands us to say, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. And to say, who is this? This person demands my life, my soul, my all. And to come trusting in Christ. That's what it demands, doesn't it? We can't be neutral. We can't just say, oh, well, never mind. It's not an amazing thing. You know, Jesus just spoke to the wind and the waves as if it's an everyday occurrence. He's the one who's God, who controls even the elements, who has power over nature. It's Christ. Have you bowed to Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour? And our everything. You see, true, authentic Christianity gives Christ his rightful place. All false religions demean Christ. They say he's just a prophet. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses, he's a created being. But true Christianity and biblical Christianity says that person is God. He is Lord and demands my everything and to trust in him everything to Christ our total allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and it also tells us that in our storms Christ gives relief he does he gives us light at the end of the tunnel and he helps us And he takes us out of trials and he takes us out of difficulties. Look at the situation. Look at the saviour. Then lastly, look at the sequel. So what happens next? As now Lake Galilee is calm. Christ's reaction to a rebuke and the disciples' reaction. There's two things as the sequel. There's Christ's rebuke and the disciples' reaction. Christ has to rebuke his disciples. Now, our Lord is full of grace and truth, and so should we be. Our Lord wasn't just full of grace, otherwise that would be sentimental. And our Lord wasn't just full of truth, otherwise that would be brutal. Our Lord was full of grace and truth. He's full of truth. He has to speak to the disciples. He has to rebuke them, but he does it lovingly. And that's what he does with us. 
He could have thrown the book at them, couldn't he? He could have, he could have really lambasted them. He could, have, he could have really accused them of so many things. They, they've accused him effectively of not caring. But our Lord doesn't. He's so tender. But he does rebuke them gently. should never shy away from truth and reality. But do it graciously. Does it so tenderly? And can't we sympathize when our Lord has to come to rebuke us as he does so often? And he comes tenderly and he asks these lovely searching questions and he says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You see, there were two problems with the disciples in this incident. What were they? Number one, they were fearful. And number two, they were faithless. And they're problems that are together and they're problems that we often have, aren't they? Oftentimes we're fearful. And then what happens is, is that when we're fearful, we're faithless. You see, the fullness and the lessness should be reversed. Oftentimes we're fearful and we should be fearless. And faithless when we should be faithful. We've got to swap around the lessness and the fullness. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Have you ever read Part 2? Have you ever read Mr. Fearing? Ever read Mr. Fearing? In the early part of the pandemic, I did a few children's messages on Mr. Fearing. And he's so afraid, he's so worried as he, as he goes up to, to, to the wicket gate. And he's so worried about knocking on the door. And he's so fearful when he gets on to the house of the interpreter. And again, he's the same. And he's so nervous. And sometimes we can be like that. We're so fearful. And Christ would come and say, why are you so fearful? We worry about this and we worry about that and we worry about the other and we're so concerned and therefore can be faithless. You see, the disciples' problem was not they had little faith. They had no faith. Is that us? No faith. Where is your faith? The disciples had seen some of the miracles our Lord had performed. They didn't have faith in him. Hasn't the Lord helped us out in the past and sometimes incredibly and incredible providences have come about and we say, oh, but I don't know about this situation. Is he going to help me here? So fearful and faithless. Oh, that we'll turn it around and be fearless and faithful. That's Christ's rebuke. And then there's the disciples' reaction. What did they say? And they feared exceedingly, a different type of fear, and said one to another, what manner of man is this? Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? Have you asked that question? Have you answered it? It demands an answer, doesn't it? Who is he? doesn't go away, does he? The issues of Christ. It's like an elephant that comes into the room and someone just carries on watching TV and just tries to pretend to ignore it. The issues of Christ are real and we've got to confront them. And we've got to say, if Christ claims who he is and these accounts are real and history and they are history. Mark writes under the tutorship of Peter who was there in the boat this is an eyewitness account with all the details if this is true then that has huge implications on our life now and for eternity for the Lord Jesus what will you do with this man what think ye of Christ what do you think of Christ who is he 
his Saviour and his Lord. Oh, that you would embrace him if you've never embraced him before as he's freely offered to you in the gospel of Christ. And that if you are a believer, that's not fear. That's not what we're so concerned about the future and, and worried about what's going to happen at the expense of, of faith. The Lord is in control. The Lord is at the head of his church. He holds the keys to all unknown. And he's the one who will, will out. He is the one who's still on the throne today. He's the one and his church is still marching on. And he's still going out, riding, conquering and to conquer. The great Lord Jesus Christ. The one whose kingdom is an eternal kingdom. The one that will never have an end. And Christ will finally have the prize for which he died. The inheritance of the nations in glory. And all his people. The lamb with his fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Oh, friends, don't judge the Lord by feeble sense from today. Don't look around at the situation and say it's so bleak, and it may well be bleak, but look to the future and look to how Christ will, will end things and look forward to that final time when he will be seen for who he is as Lord, and have all his enemies under his feet as his footstool, and merge victorious forever and ever. Keep on trusting. Keep on following. Because thorny roads lead to a joyful end.